This book has been extremely helpful to me in understanding what sin is and being able to see its effects and see how sin just affects everything around us. And I want to read a little bit of what he writes in this book. Concerning shalom, Plantinga says this. He says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. We were created for shalom. And this is the reason why we have such a struggle with sin and its consequences. We weren't created to endure that. We weren't created to live through that. We were created for shalom. And so we ask when we look around our world, because does anyone think the first word that comes to your mind when we look at our world today, the first word that pops up is shalom? No. So what went wrong? The one word answer is sin. Sin went wrong. What is sin? Plantinga explains sin is not only the breaking of law, but also the breaking of covenant with God. He also says this, and I believe that we see this. In David's response to his own sin that we find in Psalm 51, he says that all sin has first and finally a Godward force. It is a culpable and personal affront to a personal God. And so we hear David write in Psalm 51 against you and you alone have I sinned because sin does have first and finally a Godward force. Important for us to understand is something that Plantinga says, that God is for shalom and therefore against sin. He is for shalom and therefore against sin. Plantinga continues, he says, sin offends God not only because it bereaves or assaults God directly as an impiety or blasphemy, but also because it bereaves and assaults what God has made. And so what do we hear Paul say in Romans 8 that all of creation is what? Groaning. Groaning because of the sin that has invaded it, but groaning in anticipation of something yet to come. Plantinga continues, in sum, shalom is God's design for creation and redemption. Sin is blamable human vandalism of these great realities and therefore an affront to their architect and builder. That definition of sin has colored my view in a positive way, I think, so much since I read this several years ago. The truth is that sin is the vandalism of shalom. And when we understand that we as image bearers have been created to reflect our holy God and to advance his creativity and advance his shalom, we understand that sin is ultimately anti-creation. That it destroys shalom, not only for me, but for everyone around me. That sin is the enemy. It vandalizes shalom. Not only that, but he uses this term for sin. Plantinga says sin is pollution. Listen to what he says. Holiness implies not just otherness or transcendence, but also wholeness, oneness, and purity. He says to pollute is to defile The idea is that sin not only contaminates particular individuals and communities, but it also defiles their proper relation to God. Last quote by Plantinga, he says this, To pollute is to weaken a particular whole entity, such as a sound relationship by introducing into it a foreign element. Here's the truth, as I have been, you know, paying attention to our study through First and Second Samuel and this particular season of David's life from uh, the sin with Bathsheba and now forward to the point we are now, it's almost to me as if David is in a fog. And I see that here in 15 and 16. And I was thinking about that early in the week. And that's when this definition by Plantinga popped back into my head when I was reminded of him saying that that sin is pollution. 
And it struck me that it's not a fog that David is in. It is smog. Smog is a fog that's created by pollution. And we see David acting and living and reacting. He's doing all of this in the midst of this dense smog that's almost set in in his life that can be traced to his own sin and the consequences of his sin. And he is nearly crushed beneath the weight of these consequences. And that's where we get in chapter 15 and chapter 16. We saw last week of Absalom's um, actions in light of what Joab is doing. Joab is this almost serpent-like character who's kind of pulling the strings back behind the curtain. And we see Absalom come in. David's indifference to his coming in. I just don't want to see him. Whatever. Absalom comes in and we see him working behind the scenes to gain favor. He's scheming. And it all comes to a head when Absalom decides to operate this coup and take over the throne. And today we begin in verse 13 of chapter 15 when we see David's response to this. And I have struggled this week. I wanted to see if we could just read a portion and summarize a portion, but I'm not a very good summarizer. So we're just going to read the passage, okay? And we're going to begin in 1513, and we're going to read for now up into 1614, okay? So a large chunk of Scripture. I will try to get through it quickly, but let's read it and just hear what God's Word says. Verse 13. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after, after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee. Or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the six hundred Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wonder about with us, since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you. And may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. (laughs) But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord, the king lives, wherever the Lord, the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai, the Gittite, passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land, all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron. And all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up. And behold, Zadok came also with the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they sat down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok, the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came out to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past. So now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar, the priests there with you? 
So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there. Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread and 100 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. Uh, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Uh, let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. When David, when King David came to Bahurim, there uh, came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shemai, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shemai said, as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because of the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shammai went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. You pray with me. So, Father, thank you for the way that your word operates as a mirror for us. When we approach your word, we are able to see who we are. But, Lord, more importantly, we're able to see who you are and who we are in light of who you are. So, God, thank you for the way that this narrative does that for us. And, God, I pray that we would see those things clearly this morning. Thank you, God, for every truth that we have already proclaimed in song this morning. Thank you, God, that we can be settled in our hearts that every single word is true. God, help us to believe you. Help us to take you at your word. Despite the circumstances that we face, despite the way that we feel, God, I pray that we would fix our eyes on you today. God, I pray that we would worship you today. That we would be moved in our heart to just be overwhelmed by your goodness, by your greatness, by your glory. God, do that through your word today in our hearts and draw us to yourself. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So. What I would like to do is work back through the reason why I want to just go ahead and read the whole narrative is we're not going to move through chunk by chunk this morning. I just want to pull out some observations that I think that we see here that are worth noting, all moving towards the final point that I will make in just a little while as to the the, the grandest thing that I think we ought to see through this passage in this section of narrative. The first thing that we see here is the haziness of sin's smog. What is your reaction to David's response to the news about Absalom? Does it surprise you? Does it take you by surprise? It just seems so abrupt, does it not? That word comes to him that all of Israel has turned their hearts on to Absalom, and it seems like David just responds by saying, well, we're out of here. Does it surprise you? It does me, right? 
And the truth is, and, and you know, I, I don't know all the ins and outs here, but uh, everything that I seem to read confirms this, that Absalom did not have much of a chance of overthrowing David through military strength. And that's just the truth. Absalom has turned the people's hearts to himself, but we see even in the narrative that as David and his, as his band walks out of Jerusalem, all the people are weeping along with them. So at least to one level, that's not quite true that all of Israel had given themselves over to Absalom. It's not quite true that he had amassed such a great army that David had no choice. So what is going on here? I think a couple of things are going on here. The first thing that we need to see is just perception versus reality. Perception versus reality. And here's what I think. Our tendency to anchor our belief in only what our physical eyes see and physical bodies feel is only magnified in the midst of being squeezed by the brokenness of life. Do you agree with that? When we are downcast... When we are in the midst of suffering and difficulty, we tend to only see things and perceive things through our physical eyes and our physical bodies. It is at that moment that we are vulnerable to just becoming a slave to our emotions. And we begin to believe things that aren't true. We begin to listen not only to the voices around us, but we begin to listen to the voice that's inside of me. And instead of preaching the truth to myself, I give myself bad news. And we tend to act out of that. This is the reality of who we are as humans. And I think that's the biggest thing that we see in this narrative. And the greatest thing I think that we ought to see in this is that we are confronted with our own humanity in this story about David. I mean, just think about the residual effects of David's sin. We've seen over the past couple of weeks that one of those effects is just compromised leadership. That part of the effect of the smog of sin that David finds himself in is he's just compromised. He cannot act in accordance with what God has called him to do because of the effects of his sin, because of the reality of it. And he's compromised. We see broken relationships. His family has been torn apart. And horrible, tragic things happening to his family members and by his family members. We see indifference by David. When his heart should be either to execute justice or to seek the repentance of members of his family, including Absalom, he's instead just indifferent and hands off. We see the lingering grief of profound loss. That grief lingers, doesn't it? It's not as if it just goes away. It lingers. And then here we see the scorn of a son that's leading to a coup attempt by his son. And so David, when he hears this news, he's just quick to say, we must flee. Now, there is something in here that we see where he says, I don't want Jerusalem to come under the sword. And some people believe that David just cares about the people and about the city so much that he doesn't want any kind of military struggle to kill innocent people as this is taking place. That could be an aspect to this. But I also believe that David is 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 buying into the perception rather than the reality, because what is God's promise to David Brothers and sisters, when we are squeezed by life, that's when we need to throw ourselves back into God's word to preach to ourselves the truth of the gospel. And that doesn't mean that we will not have to face the consequences of our sin and that we won't walk through suffering. But we can stand on the truth of what God has said he will do because he will do it. And I believe to some degree, David is failing to do that here to some degree. This contrast comes to my mind. I think back to the story of David and Goliath. And when I have worked through that passage here with us, I remember saying something about David. When David shows up on the scene and Goliath is taunting the Israelites and all of them are shaking and the king is in his tent wringing his hands. David shows up on the scene, and here is the truth. David is the only one in that place that is seeing things as they really are. Everybody else is seeing with physical eyes and feeling things, and that's leading their non-response to this opposition. David shows up. His confidence is not in himself. It's not as if he shows up and says, I'm better than all these people. I can go out. What is it that he says? 
Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that is cursing the name of our God? David understood the promise that God had made, and David stood on that promise. David believes, and he's able to see things as they really are. Now contrast this with where David is in this narrative. And the truth is, before we get too hard on David, that there's a lot of life that's happened since Goliath. And this smog has set in, and all of a sudden David isn't seeing things so clearly. I want to go back and read also some of the Psalms that David read through this period in his life. And I'll be pulling quite a bit from Psalm 69. If you want to turn there and put your finger there, I'm going to go ahead and read this. This is what David writes in the first five verses. And it gives us some insight into what David is feeling and experiencing. It says there, save me, O God, David writes, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me. Those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore Oh, God, you know, my folly, the wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Do you hear the hint of perception? My enemies are more than the hairs of my head. There's almost an an exaggeration that's built into that because of the smog of sin. Everything's being exaggerated for David. But notice the flicker of faith that's still there. But let me ask you this question. What is it? What is it? That our hearts are attuned to. What is attuning our hearts? What is tuning our hearts? What is informing our hearts of what is real? We must be immersed in God's word. So that our hearts are attuned to the truth. And our hearts can lose that intonation very easily when we begin to look to other voices and other sources of truth, especially when we are experiencing hardship and suffering. That question should always be before us. What is it that is attuning our hearts? And what is the outcome of this? Well, we see the king fleeing eastward. There is a strong connection here between David and Adam and Eve in the garden. And in the same way that Adam and Eve saw the fruit on the tree and they determined for themselves that it was good, despite what God had said, David had done the same thing with Bathsheba. And instead of submitting himself to God and informing his own temptation, he took what was not his and he called it good. And in the same way that Adam and Eve's sin cost them banishment from God and, and, and fleeing eastward, we see this eastward move in the scriptures every time sin compels us to go out. And there's this eastward move by the king in fleeing to the wilderness. But yet we see evidence of enduring faith. And we see it in a couple of places. Notice that David refuses to look to the ark as a token of fortune. Even as the priests bring the ark and are happy to bring it to where David is and are happy to continue to carry it wherever David goes. I think David is recalling the folly of those who have looked at this ark as a as a good luck charm in the past. And David is unwilling to do that. And listen to what he says. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do what seems good to him. God is still placing his life firmly in the hands of God. And he is recognizing that God is sovereign over his life. And he is trusting that God will do to him and with him whatever is his good pleasure. And so we see faith in the midst of the difficulty, even in the midst of the smog of sin. We also see David um, acting shrewdly during this time. He is still acting in ways that will benefit himself, that he needs. He, we see him setting up a spy network and communication network with these priests. I'm going to send you back, and through your sons, you're going to be able to communicate with me. So that's shrewd action by David. Also by sending Hushai, that we'll see in a few minutes, back to fiend service to Absalom, 
right, to kind of counteract what Ahithophel is counseling Absalom to do. Hushai is going to go and be covert in his support of David. So a question confronted me this week as I'm reading commentaries, because in a few places people are saying that David is just not seen clearly at all. In other places, I see people saying, no, David is being faithful throughout. And so the question confronts us, is David not being faithful or is he being faithful? And here's the truth, especially when it comes to Bible characters, we tend to want to fit characters neatly into one of those boxes, don't we? We tend to want to do that with ourselves and with others. And the more I thought about that thing this week, the more I realized that the answer was yes. Yes. Brothers and sisters, can we be transparent enough just to recognize that sometimes our faith is present, but it is broken and feeble? And I've been reminded this week that I have done nothing over the course of my life that was 100% faithful. And so we see both in the life of David. I can't imagine being crushed by what David is being crushed by here. And yet we see a flicker of faith. We see his faith in the midst of it. Second, we see the burden of despair. Burden of despair. The crescendo for this comes in verse 30 of chapter 15. Where we see him make this ascent to the Mount of Olives. There's some key words there that show us just how distraught David is. The whole way he is weeping. And not only is David weeping, but everyone who is with him is weeping. It also says that he goes up barefoot. Barefoot, which shows that he is just desolate. He is desolate in his grief. He says that his head is covered. He is confronted with his own sin, the consequences of his sin. He's confronted by what's going on with his son What's going on with the kingdom? What's going on with his place and his failure? And all of this stuff is just crushing him. And in the midst of that, he is told that he is betrayed by one of his closest advisors, Ahithophel. Can you put yourself in his shoes to hear this? One of his closest advisors. It says later in the passage that the word of Ahithophel was respected just as much as the word of God. And now David finds out that he has stayed and is betraying him. We see David taken advantage of by Ziba, who comes and brings all of these offerings to David and all of these things. And it's clear to me that Ziba is, first of all, he's misrepresenting what Mephibosheth's desires was. And it was easy to do so with him. And so Ziba comes, he's offering all of these offerings to David, and he's manipulating things in order to take advantage of a vulnerable situation to get what he wants. And David, in his grief, and because he can't go and check all the facts, he makes a rash decision to give Ziba exactly what he's after. So we see him being taken advantage of in the midst of this. And then we see this cursing by this man named Shammai, this relative of Saul. What do we know about David's treatment of Saul? Time and again, David would have even been deemed righteous by those around him in taking Saul's life. But in every situation, what was David's refrain? I will not draw a sword against the Lord's anointed. I will not. I will not strike the Lord's anointed. And yet we see this cursing that's just spewing lies and misrepresentations about David and what David's true actions were. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a place of such despair that you almost welcome more pain and suffering? I think that's where we see David. I mean, he is, you know, he is growing comfortable in this bed, if that makes sense. He's in the throes of pity here and despair. And when this cursing comes, it's not as if David would invite it, but it's almost like he's just, that's just where he's at. This cursing on top of everything else, it's just par for the course. This is what I'm facing. I think we need to hear something in light of Shammai's activity here, though, that I read this week that was a good check for me. One commentator says that Shammai is both theological and pitiless. And he's throwing around God's name. And he's saying that he's acting in God's name. And he's also pitiless to David. We need to be careful, brothers and sisters, that we don't join Shammai in this activity. And especially with the way that our world is today, it's very easy for us to take this posture where we begin to invoke the name of God and we are pitiless and forget 
that the Lord is the greatest need of anyone who may set themselves up against us. And that's where Shemaiah is at, invoking the name of the Lord in order to inflict maximum pain and pitiless in doing it. May we never, never be like Shemaiah. David is to the place where he's believing that every source of pain is coming from the hand of God. He even attributes that to Shammai, for the Lord has told him to. David is just so focused on the ramifications of his sin and the consequences that everything that happens to him is a rightful curse in light of what he's done. But even in the midst of such despair, we see the flickering light of faith again. In the wake of the news of Ahithophel's betrayal, we see David immediately turning his countenance to the Lord in prayer. Listen to what he says. Oh, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. In that moment, I can't imagine how hurt he was by this news, but he immediately went to the Lord, not only for himself, but on behalf of his people. I mean, think about this. David is the king. He's not only feeling the weight of this personally, he's feeling it corporately. And so his prayer to the Lord is that the counsel of Ahithophel would be foolish. In the midst of Shammai's cursing, we hear David respond this way. It may be that the Lord will look on my wrong, uh, look on the wrong done to me. A lot of translations translate that as my affliction. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Ralph Davis, who Gerald has um, gone to many times over the past couple of weeks, really good commentator for a lot of different books. He 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 um, he, he says that he doesn't believe that the, the translation is, is correct here, that either the correction look on the wrong done to me or look on my affliction. He says that although it is translated in a sense that makes sense to us, that would never be the Hebrew understanding of what David is saying here. Listen to what he thinks. He thinks that it is better rendered, look on my iniquity. Why would he say that? Look in your scriptures and turn back to chapter 12 for just a moment. This is in the midst of Nathan rebuking David and also offering this prophecy of the cost of David's sin. And look at verses 10 through 12. Where Nathan says this, now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Ralph Davis says that those verses are key, are the interpretive key for us to understand everything then that takes place between chapter 13 and chapter 20. That everything is in light of that. And because of that, and because of David's just overall past, uh, posture that we see in these chapters, he believes that David is not thinking that anyone is doing wrong to him. But David is squarely focused on his own iniquity. So it would read like this. It may be that the Lord will look on my iniquity and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Why does this matter? Well, listen to what Ralph Davis says. I love this. He says here in 1612 is the secret of David's peace, not in having Shammai's head on a platter as it was offered. Not having Shammai's head on a platter, but in this astounding statement, it may be that Yahweh will look upon my iniquity and return good to me. Listen to this. This is beautiful. He assumes that Yahweh has the strangely wonderful way of looking upon guilt and yet returning blessing instead of curse. And listen to what he goes on to say. He says, David could never have even conceived this possibility unless he had already laid hold upon the known character of his God. Not only had David lived some years and experienced some pain and accumulated some sin and some consequences for his sin, David had walked with the Lord to the degree that he knew him. He had abided in his presence enough to know the character of God. And time after time, when David had stumbled and fallen, he knew that God was merciful and gracious. 
And here David is able to stand upon that truth. And we hear that in David's writing, Psalm 69 again, verses 13 through 18. Listen to what David says. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. I think David would say all of that is deserving, but oh God, spare me from it. Save me from it. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. David knew the character of God enough to know that he could cry out to him as the Redeemer and the Deliverer. And we see that here even amidst the deep despair. And it is the beautiful character of God and his steadfast love that shines from the background of this narrative. And that's what we see next is the beauty of God's steadfast love. God is good. He is good. And his sovereign purposes will stand. His promises are sure. He is faithful to his word. And all through the background of this text, we see a God at work bringing his story to his end. And we see it in various ways that are just beautiful to me. First, we see it just in encouragement, the way that God orchestrates things so that David is encouraged. And I think that we see this in his interaction with Ittai the Gittite. I love that name. Ittai the Gittite. It's just fun to say. I've been saying it all week. Ittai the Gittite. This is what Ittai says, and this actually has echoes of Ruth and Naomi. But Ittai comes to David by him, and David says, no, 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 you've not been with me long, you go back. May the Lord show his steadfast love to you as you return to Jerusalem. He's a foreigner, right? This is what he says. Ittai says, as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And just as much as that encouraged Naomi to hear Ruth say something like that, David, I believe, was encouraged by this. But here is this one that David gave a pass to. You don't have to go with me. I don't even know where I'm going. You can go back. Take your people back. No, I'm with you. And do you hear the double oath? This is a strong statement. It's not only an oath by the name of the Lord, but by David's name as king. What an encouragement to David. We see God steadfast love and answering David's petition when he prays that he would frustrate the counsel of Ahithophel and turn it to frustration. The very next thing we read is this. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And David's interaction led to Hushai going back and maybe being the agent of that frustration for Ahithophel. Here's the truth. God answers David's prayer, but in God's way, not David's. And I believe that that brought encouragement to David. He also has comfort through allies, Zadok and Abiathar, the the priests. He was able to send back with the ark back to Jerusalem and set up this network of communication so that David isn't completely in the dark, so that word could continually come to him to let him know what's going on in Jerusalem. There's comfort there by knowing that allies are in place that are for you. It's God's steadfast love, I believe. And this may be my favorite line. In this portion of the narrative right here, I love this. 15 verse 37, look at it with me. It says there, speaking of Hushai, so Hushai, I love this phrase, David's friend. Just think about that for a second. Think about what we see about David in this passage. And then hear that phrase, Hushai, David's friend. Came into the city. Listen, just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem, there is a God who is busy at work using everything for our good and his glory. And we see that here. But it's important for us to understand that God is not at work and he is not showing his steadfast love because of David. Because of David. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 40. 
Verses 1 through 3 and then 11, listen to what he says. I waited patiently for the Lord. And listen to the emphasis. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. That is holy in action of a gracious God who will who will do what he says he will do. And David is a benefactor of that. And all throughout this narrative, despite the depths of despair, we see God's sovereign love shine through in beautiful ways. Finally, this morning, we see the wickedness of sin's way, the continued wickedness of sin's way, we can say. Even as David, in his brokenness and despair, places his feeble trust in the Lord, we see a picture of the scheming ways of man continue in Jerusalem. Read that part of the passage that we have not read yet, beginning there, chapter 16, verse 15. And this should ring after we've gone back and heard what Nathan said would happen. Verse 15, it says, Now Absalom and all the people, uh, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. Wonder which king he means there. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord, uh, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, this I will be, and with him I will remain. Wonder who he means. And again, whom shall I serve? Shall it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. I'm sure you will, Hushai. Serve you just in the same way that you're serving David. Verse 20, then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel. What shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father. And the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel of Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. So what do we see here? The Saul-like figure, Absalom, ascends to the throne by way of his own scheming. Right? The coup is done. He's on the throne. He chooses to listen to the advisor. Who again in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. I wrote there in my notes, if only there was a way to measure that. That was tongue in cheek. If only there was a way to measure if his counsel is as if it's the word of God. But we don't see God's word consulted here. We simply see the counsel of Ahithophel. Man's attempt to topple once for all. One man's reign and to firmly establish the reign of another is what we see here. Ahithophel is counseling Absalom in the way that he can firmly establish him as king and make, like he says, him to be a stench in the nostrils of his father. What do we see here? We see more rampant wickedness. This ought to, like, just cause us to have a reaction. Just the wickedness that's on display here. We also see the fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy. God's word is sure. And all that he says take place, it will. But notice the context that this wickedness takes place is the same context of David's wickedness. The roof of the palace both take place in the same, same place, same context. We'll learn more about this. This will be a good springboard into the rest of the narrative. But I want to read what David writes in Psalm 3 as he's going through this situation. Verses 7 and 8, he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. So even as this wickedness goes on unchecked, it's not truly unchecked, is it? God is still in control. And David is looking to the Lord as the only one who can set things right. Here's where I want us to focus as we close this morning. Is that once again, through this bit of narrative, David points us forward to another king. Turn back with me to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. The section where we hear the Lord's covenant with David, his promises. Listen once again to verses 14 and 15. It says there, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Do you see David's situation in that? But brothers and sisters, here's the glorious news. David isn't the only one that we should see in that. And once again, David points us forward to another king. One who would walk a road of suffering, but it wouldn't be because of his own sin. One who would experience the depths of despair and anguish. Indeed, this king acquainted himself with our grief and bore in himself our sorrow and hurt. And like David, this king also would languish and cry out to his father in prayer on the Mount of Olives. And he too would do this in the wake of a betrayal by one in his own inner circle. The truth is, brothers and sisters, in this world, we will have trouble. Jesus tells us that. And sometimes that trouble results from the consequences of our own sin. Sometimes that trouble simply results from the chaos and brokenness of a fallen creation and life under the sun. And often it's a combination of both of those things. But... Even in the midst of sorrow and despair, God's people have a living hope. God sees. God knows. And God cares. And he invites us to cast our burdens on him. He will never leave nor forsake those who are his. His promises are sure. He is faithful and we can rest in the reality of his steadfast love. Even when we struggle to see it. And even in the smog of sin, we can know that he is working his good purposes toward his glorious end. And what is that end? The restoration of the shalom that he intends. That our hearts long for because we were created for it. That's been lost in sin. That's what God intends to do to restore it. And the pain, the sorrow, the grief, and even despair that seems to grip so much of our experience in this world will not have the last word. And we will see that in the story of David. And it's a reminder to us that it's true for us who are in Christ Jesus. That he is true to what he says he will do. Psalm 69, verses 30 through 36, David says this. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. Amen and amen. Will you bow your heads with me this morning?
as we come to a time of response. My first question would be, do you know this king? Do you know Jesus as your rock and your salvation, your shield, your deliverer, your redeemer? Do you know him this morning? Because here is the truth. If you are not in Christ, if I am not in Christ, then we are bound to face the punishment for our sin for eternity. He is our only hope. He is the only reconciliation between us and the Father. Put your trust in Him today. Put your trust in Him today. Believer, brothers and sisters, what is attuning your mind and your heart? What are the voices that you are listening to? In those moments of despair and difficulty, are you finding yourself resting firmly on every promise that is yours in God's Word? Or are you finding yourself racked with anxiety? Put your trust in Him. Put your trust in the reality of God and His will. And to do that, we have to abide in Him. Abide in Him. This morning, are you weary and heavy laden? Jesus says, take my yoke upon yourself. He is the deliverer. He is the healer. Look to him today. Behold the beauty of his salvation. Rest in that church. Exalt in that church. Celebrate that. And be thankful to him. So, Father, I pray that even as we come to this time of response, that that would be the response of our hearts. Thank you for the picture that we see in this narrative of your goodness and greatness, of the beauty of your steadfast love. Oh, God, may we come to rest in it. God, help us now to respond in the way that you would call us to. Father, to respond in courage, knowing that you invite us to come to you. With boldness we are to come to you. So, Father, help us to do that. Help us to bring every hurt and every burden because we know that you care for us. And, God, strengthen us in those times that we are prone to despair. God, knowing that you're good and that you will complete your good plan and bring the restoration of shalom. And one day we will live in a very physical place through resurrection with you and enjoy your presence forever. God, help us to endure in that hope today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.